Hi guys, it's Annie McDonald, physio and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Inform Performance podcast. On today's show, Ben Ashworth from Inform Performance will be chatting to Nigel Walker, OBE, the current performance director of the Welsh Rugby Union. Nigel is impressively a former international athlete and rugby union player. He represented Great Britain as a high hurdler before switching to rugby, earning 17 international caps for Wales. Nigel, I think, as an informed performance guest, is the first person we've spoken to that has been awarded the OBE honour, which for him was an honour he received in 2019. On top of this and a successful athletic career, he has enjoyed professional roles at the English Institute of Sport and the BBC prior to his current role in rugby. Obviously, one hell of a background and guest, as I've no doubt you'll agree now, and also after you've heard the conversation coming up between Ben and Nigel. This episode has been sponsored by Vol Performance, makers of Forstex, the world's fastest, easiest and most powerful dual force plate system. Forstex can help you to analyse neuromuscular strength, performance and imbalances in your athletes. With an incredibly simple setup and intuitive software, Forstex automatically detects over 15 common force plate tests and analyses them with a single click, helping you to collect quick and accurate insights on your athletes. To learn more, head over to our sponsor, volperformance.com. You're listening to the Informed Performance Podcast, and here is today's episode between Nigel Walker and Ben Ashworth. Welcome to another edition of the Informed Performance Podcast. My name is Ben Ashworth, and it's a real pleasure to have Nigel Walker on the show today. Welcome to the show, Nigel. Uh, Thank you very much. A pleasure to be on. Our paths crossed for a short time in the English Institute of Sport prior to London 2012, but When I was doing a little bit of background preparation for this conversation, I found a quote that said, once it's in the hands of Nigel Walker, you can start celebrating. (laughs) Um, A tribute to your time on the pitch back in the Five Nations, but I'm sure it goes for any role you've had since. I know you've been the National Director of the EIS for 11 years, which spanned the games in London, Rio, and the recent challenges um, that the sort of state of the world caused around Tokyo. Plus, prior to that, you've held roles in the BBC. But where I thought we could start would be if you could perhaps update the listeners on where you are now and talk a bit about your recent appointment and what the scope of that role looks like and what you're currently up to. Well, I I was appointed in September of this year as Performance Director for the Welsh Rugby Union. So I've got responsibility for men's under-20s, under-18s, seven-a-side, the women's senior team, women's under 20s, under 18s and seven aside. So it's everything bar the senior men's team. Uh, But I work closely with Wayne Pivak, who's the head coach of Wales, uh, to make sure that the, hopefully, the talented players coming through at under 18, under 20s are the types of player that he'd want to pick two or three years later and that all positions are covered. Uh, So it's quite an extensive role. It's been pretty full on since I started, but I'm thoroughly enjoying it. Yeah, I'm interested in why the change of role, Nigel, and why did you want to make them move into this position? Well, you, you touched on it, it briefly. I started proper work, as it were, um, after my rugby career. Uh, I, I worked in the media briefly. Uh, I worked for the Welsh Rugby Union briefly as their player development manager. And then I started as head of sport at, at BBC Wales. And during my nine years at BBC Wales, uh, I became the head of change and internal communications and program 
director for the drama village uh, where Doctor Who is now made. I left there uh, to go to the EIS, 11 years at the EIS, science, medicine, medicine, technology and engineering support uh, for the 40 Olympic and Paralympic sports, 400 members of staff across nine main sites. After 11 years and after uh, the Olympic and Paralympic journey, both winter and summer, I felt the time was right for a change. And the Welsh Rugby Union were looking for a performance director at that time. And as they say, the rest is history. Uh, I feel I've learned a lot over the last 20 years uh, working, both in terms of strategy and more importantly, the implementation of strategy and taking people with you so that you have a performance impact. And I felt the opportunity was uh, too good a one to turn down to change from what I've been doing for 11 years uh, to throw my hat into the rugby ring, as it were. One word that comes up there a lot is change. And that's something I know I know you've spoken about and specifically about delivering change in high performance environments. I'm sure our listeners who are involved or want to be more involved in strategic leadership roles would be interested. And I'd, I'd love to pick your, your brains as well a little bit about your experiences on the fundamentals to succeed when you're delivering change in those kind of environments. Well, I should start by saying I'm an MBA graduate. And normally when I'm talking to people and I mention that, their eyes roll into the back of their heads. Uh, I'm not going to give anybody a um, a strategic lesson. That That's not the purpose of this conversation. Um, but what I learned in my three stroke four years taking my MBA has stuck with me uh, about the type of leader I wanted to be. But when implementing strategy, first of all, deciding whether it's big bang in other words, the business, the industry, the sport is really failing and whether you need to do something really quite radical and at a fundamental level or whether the results are not quite as you would want them to be and therefore it can be more incremental change. That's the first thing. And in in most of the organisations I've worked in, it's been incremental change. Of course, the big bang change disrupts the industry. You alienate loads of people. Um, you don't necessarily get everybody wanting to, to follow you, and it, it's much more uphill. Whereas incremental change, if you set out what you feel the problems are and invite people to help you solve those problems, it can be a much smoother journey. So you stepped in through the door only a few months ago. It sounds like they're keeping you busy. Um, from your recent or past experiences, how do you manage those first few weeks or the first three months in a role? How do you personally go about managing that? Well, it was interesting because um, the interview process ended at the end of June, um, beginning of July. I was told I had the job. I had to serve three months notice. I didn't wait until the end of September before making contact. Within a few days, I was talking to people, visiting people, getting a feel for the organization, taking annual leave to do it, dare I say it, doing some bits on the weekend but getting to know the business before you actually start so that when you come to your, and people talk about the first 90 days, you're not actually spending a week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks of the first 90 days working out what you're going to do. You walk into the door and you've got a reasonable idea of what you'd like to introduce or what you'd like to achieve in the first 90 days and certainly what your first week or two is going to be like. And you've already positioned people and aligned people who you're going to work with behind what you want to achieve. It may not be your long-term strategy, but in the short term, I'd like to visit this and talk about this and examine whether we're doing this correctly. 
So with those conversations or when you were having those conversations in that pre-preparation phase prior to pressing the go button on the job, did you identify some key areas that you need to work on in your current role? Well, all sport is around the talent pathway. Uh, today's um, results are important and you might not be addressing issues at that level but if a sport is going to be sustainable and there's going to be a continuous supply of quality athletes, and I use that word broadly, um, populating that pathway, you've got to get it right. So I just started having conversations about what individuals who were in the employee of the union, what they thought about the talent pathway, asking questions, not giving people answers, asking questions, not le- even highlighting problems at that stage, just asking them simple questions. Do we have enough players? Are there any problem positions? What do we do to ensure that we'll continue to have uh, quality players? What's the relationship like with the regions? What are our academies like? Just asking those noddy questions and getting answers and storing those answers and then going back a week or two later and say, well, I've spoken to this person and they've said this. What do you think about that? Just asking questions to begin with, getting people on side, speaking to all the stakeholders, because you'll need those people to align behind you in order to achieve any change that you feel necessary further down the line. Well, thinking a little about what you spoke about earlier around incremental change and how it's not going to disrupt an organisation. Actually, we had um, Prav Mathema on the uh, podcast a couple of shows ago. Good man. Yeah, he's a top man. I've known him for a long time, back since the Wasps and QPR days where the two teams shared a a treatment porter cabin together. You've obviously got some really good people already established within the organisation. So I suppose that makes the job a lot easier for you coming in. Exactly. And it's, it's not coming in and saying, I know everything, because clearly I don't. There are things that I've got questions about things I'd like them to tell me, what their frustrations are. And that's how the conversation starts. And if that conversation starts immediately on hearing you've got the job, two, three months later, when you walk into the door, everybody's got a pretty good idea of what we should put, the ideas we should try to push forward in the first three or four months. Now, now COVID has made that more difficult. It's a real challenge because we're not operating in normal circumstances, although we need to make it more normal but it just makes it more difficult. And perhaps uh, moving forward with not one uh, hand tied behind your back, but it's more difficult than it would be ordinarily. Yeah, I spoke to another colleague of mine recently who took on a job and wasn't able to have any face-to-face contact with some staff due to COVID restrictions in that initial information gathering period. Uh, he, he felt that it helped him to spend time and ask a lot of questions. And it's become a bit more normal now, um, to have those remote conversations rather than the face-to-face discussions. I know it was useful to him and it's certainly been a way of getting around the challenges, I suppose, of this this COVID-fueled environment. Yeah, and in my previous job, I'd spent nine and a half years doing 35,000 miles a year, uh, visiting all the sites, visiting key people, making sure I'm having those conversations both inside and outside the organisation. Within the space of two or three weeks, I was sitting at my desk at home for eight, 10 hours a day without moving from the seat. And as three months, six months, nine months went on, 
the EIS continued to contribute to the high-performance system that is Olympic and Paralympic sport. And my 35,000 miles a year went down to 300 miles a year, but we were still doing the job and many people were in the same position. So when you have something like that, it makes you think in a different way. And that's what I meant by the conversations I was having. People in an organization who've been doing the same job for four, five, six, seven, eight years, they become institutionalized. And that's not a criticism. Of course they will. But when somebody new comes in, they ask different questions, question why people are doing things in a certain way, ask whether things could be done in a more efficient, but this is the key, a more effective way. Because having a performance impact means raising the bar, raising the standard of what you're doing. And when somebody comes in and just provokes a little bit of thought, if it's done in the right way, that can lead to changes in an organization which wouldn't have occurred if there hadn't been that disruption, whether it's an individual or in this case, whether it's a a pandemic uh, having a disruptive effect. I'm interested in, Nigel, whether your past history and experience as a player has helped or whether the role at the EIS and recent work experiences have given given you that kind of credibility or or both you know i suppose it's a an open question yeah well you've got to have credibility where you get it from <laughs> will depend if you go into a job especially if you go in as a, in a senior position if you're not credible people won't listen to what you've got to say and they may pay lip service but they're not really going to buy into what you've got to say the fact that i i, I played for wales albeit a number of years ago gives me a credibility within with certain people within uh, the sport the fact that I spent 11 years working in a, an area of, of sport which has had unprecedented success gives me added credibility. The fact that it's outside of my sport that I'm working in now, people are curious and curious is good. Uh, and as long as that's introduced in the right way, and I like to think I introduce it in the right way, I'll say again, I don't know everything. I haven't got all the answers, but I've got quite a few questions. And depending on the answers to those questions will determine the direction of travel over the next six months, next 12 months, over the next three or four years. Curiosity, that's a thats a really nice way of putting it around that role you had before and how that might lead to some interesting conversations further down the line. With the EIS role, what things have you taken from that that you think are going to support this new move and this new role and the, the challenges that lie ahead? I, I think there are a few things. First of all, the attention to detail. Uh, UK sport has been incredibly good over the last 20 years of setting strategy and inviting the sports and the British Olympic Association, British Paralympic Association, uh, to be part of that development of the strategy. That's really important. And then the attention to detail, the granularity of those programmes across the 40 sports. And also, from the position I was in, working with those 40 sports, and there's 40 odd of them, and understanding that an answer for cycling is not necessarily the answer for rowing. And I'm not talking, the sports are different, obviously, but you can't go in with a blanket approach. There will be certain elements which we want you to do this, we want you to do that, of course there will. But the sports will have nuances which will mean that each strategy will be different. And and I think just bringing that into rugby within one sport, a strategy which will take the Welsh Rugby Union forward, fine, 
But will that work for the Ospreys? Will it work totally for the Scarlet? Or will they need some variation of that strategy, of that limb of the strategy which uh, relates to them? And will Cardiff be the same as the Scarlet? No, they won't. And I think just having that open mind. So this is the block, the big block, which is the consistent block. This is what we're trying to achieve. And this is how it will relate to you. But there has to be flexibility within that plan for the nuances which may relate to geography or particular circumstances or because of the coach or because of recent history and being open to those nuances and then actually tweaking things so that it's actually perfect for everybody who's going to be a stakeholder within that overall plan is really key. You mentioned the differences between the regions like Ospreys. Does that also carry over to the differences between the men's and women's game and maybe the youth and development games at national level? Um, Is there a need, a similar need for those sort of different strategies that work separately with the senior adult game and perhaps with the women's and men's? Or how do you see that? Yeah, well, let's take the men's and women's game, for example. Um, The men's senior team have punched above their weight for the last 15 years or so. No two ways about it. The women in recent times, if we take the autumns out of it, uh, they went two years without winning a game. Massive difference. You look at the talent pathways, the big problem for our, in the women's game, is between 16 and 20. How are we going to fix that? The men's game is much more mature. Um, We've got under 20s, we've got under 18s, we've got academies. But we know that between 18 and 23, As you come out of the under-18s, as you come out of the under-20s, because it's a late maturation sport, how many of those 19-year-old boys are going to be ready to go for a regional contract? So therefore, where are they going to play? What are those individual player plans going to look like at 18, 19, 20? What are we going to do? Whereas the women, the problem is much younger. It's at 16, 17, 18. We look at the club structure and the fact that our senior women 95% of our senior women are playing in the Alliance in England. Completely different problems. So you couldn't come up with this one strategy, one size fits all, just for our men and women within one sport within Wales. So therefore, the solutions need to be much more nuanced and need to be given greater thought. So when when you came into the role, one of the things around changing in a new environment can be around establishing what the threats or potential threats might be to success. Is there something that you can share where you think that in your current position, there are some pretty clearly identifiable threats that you'll need to navigate through? Definitely. So if you look at our club structure with our women, um, does that prepare our women to play international rugby? Definitely not. Um, If you're playing within the club structure in Wales, where are you going to go to play? Oh, we're going to go and play in England. Clearly, in the long term, that's not a sustainable position because if you want your role models to be within the game in Wales, they need to be part of a structure. If you're 14, 15, 16, you need to see yourself in four or six or eight years time, somebody who's in that position now. And it's much more difficult if they're outside of the system that you've currently got. I've made no bones about it. We need to address that. But that's not something that will be addressed in three months or six months. That's a slow burn but we need to address that. Yeah, definitely. I'm in a position of leadership myself and I was personally interested in getting your opinion as performance director for a large organisation like the Welsh Rugby Union. 
what do you look for in a performance team to help you and support you with your your challenges? Well, the first thing is whoever the head coach is or the director responsible, they, they've got to share your vision and you've got to work together. So when I came in as performance director, um, I, I'm not responsible. I don't line manage Wayne Pivak, but our thoughts on the way the game is going to be developed have to be similar. They don't have to be exactly the same, have to be similar. The direction of travel, we have to agree on that. And then the players that I'm going to try and produce with the help of others at under 18, under 20 level, the pipeline of talent coming into his team, we have to agree on what that will look like, um, especially in a multi-discipline sport where you've got a, a loose head prop will look completely different from a left winger. The skills are different. So how are we going to develop those players and enough of them so that he's happy in three years' time, five years' time, eight years' time? And then once you've got the the head coach, the coaches that they employ, the science and medicine team, what are the core skills that we're looking for? And I'm not talking about a nutritionist being a good nutritionist. I'm talking about core line management, leadership skills, values, because all of those things have to be perfectly aligned if you're going to do the best job you can do. You can still have success if it's not perfectly aligned, but you're much more likely to have success and it's much more likely to happen sooner if you are aligned on all of those things. Yeah, 100% agree on that. Uh, recently, I was talking with another colleague about leadership as being a skill. Um, it comes to that place where the, the, you know, the character of people is really important. You come in and you change the people or change the people. On the one hand, it's an opportunity to develop and support current staff to develop alongside the organization. But Sometimes you come across people who aren't willing to change. Um, I'm not suggesting you give any examples from Welsh rugby here, but hypothetically, how would you manage that? Or how have you managed that before, Nigel, when you've got someone who's a little bit more reluctant to adopt the vision and align with the way that the organisation wants to go? Well, you try and reduce the risk of that happening, first of all, by including as many people in the organisation in the development of strategy uh, the development of values, the direction of travel. So you can minimise the risk by doing that. People tend to feel alienated if they're told what to do or told what they should think or, or told what the direction of travel would be without any discussion. That's the first thing. And then once you've gone through that process and there may be a reluctant individual or two, you have the conversation with them. And occasionally you come to the agreement that this organisation and that individual, um, the partnership is no longer tenable. And you, you do it in a way which abides by uh, the law of the land and employment law. And you try and make it, if you come to an agreement, sometimes you just come to an agreement, the person says, yeah, I'll start looking for something else. Sometimes they need to be encouraged, but you help them through the process. Because th the worst of all worlds is the individual to be unhappy the organisation not getting what they want out of the ind individual and everything becoming a battle. Uh, and I've had those conversations in the past and I've reached agreement and people have moved on. And, and it, it, I don't want that to sound overly aggressive. I don't go in and say, look, you're out the door, you don't fit. I don't do that. But if clearly there's a difference of opinion about the way the organisation needs to progress, about what is required of an individual the contribution that you'd expect that individual to make, 
if there's a mismatch in terms of expectation or understanding, it's better to have the conversation and hopefully come to an amicable agreement. But avoiding the issue will not make will not change anything. If anything, it, the situation is likely to degenerate and it become a real battle for all concerned. And not just the senior officer, if I can use that expression, and the employee, if I can use that expression or that word, but the people who work around them begin to feel the tension and it be- can become really debilitating. And I don't want to work in a, a situation like that. And, and most people don't either. Yeah, I'd agree also with that. Um, and giving people a chance and giving them time is a really important that part of that. Um, I appreciate your time is precious. Um, and I'd like to ask one more question. How long do you think it takes to have an impact when you come into a new role? I know from my own personal experiences what I think about that, but how long does it take to have a true impact on an organisation when you come into these kind of leadership roles? It it depends on the state of the organisation when you go in. That's the obvious answer. Um, If an organisation's in a state of... um, is in a position where it's not fulfilling many of its obligations and missing many of its targets and KPIs, you can have an impact in a relatively short period of time just by stabilising it and agreeing uh, the direction of travel. And in an organisation like that, there may be what we call low-hanging fruit. And you could make those tweaks and those changes relatively quickly and you'll see, if not immediate results, but relatively uh, short-term results, positive results. If an organization has reached a point where it's been really successful, but you can see on the on the horizon um, some icebergs or challenges for it, well, it may take longer to come up with a strategy to make sure you meet the demands of 2022 or 2023. And then you've got to go through an implementation process and then you start to get the results. That can take two, three, four years. And, and I, my, one of my first answers was, is this organization performing? If it's not performing, if it doesn't start performing, are the results going to be catastrophic, big bang? Or we just need to make these small changes to make sure that we stay in the top three or four or five percent or keep winning or whatever the market is. And therefore, it will be much more gentle change, iterative change incremental change which doesn't mean that some people might might not find it painful but it's less painful for the majority working in in that organization and rather than a handbrake turn it's much more of a gentle correction i don't know how many metaphors i can use in this one particular answer but but you know the point i'm trying to make and and you have to come to that view reasonably quickly whether it's handbrake turn or whether you can have much more gentle uh, pressure on the tiller. Nigel, that was a, a nice answer made more colourful by the use of metaphors. But yeah, I, <laughs> yeah. of course, I get your point. Um, that'll be really useful for the listeners. As I said, I'm appreciative of your time. And as someone who watched you compete on the pitch, it's it's been a real pleasure to have been able to get you on the show. Um, I wish you every success in your new role, apart from when you're playing England next year in the Six Nations, of course. And yeah, it's been really good to have you on the show. So thanks again and thanks very much for your time. Uh, My pleasure, Ben. My pleasure.